Our scripture reading today comes from John 12, 35 through 43. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, before we get started, I want us to pray together. Uh, this is a really important month in terms of our prayer life as a church. Uh, there are two uh, issues of justice that God cares deeply about that we pray about uh, every January. Uh, the first is we pray uh, for the issue of, of racial reconciliation and justice. This is Martin Luther King weekend. So we're going to take a minute here to pray about that together. Uh, and then next week we're, is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we're going to pray about uh, the, the holiness, uh, the goodness, and the sacredness of every human life. Uh, and these are both issues that God cares about deeply, uh, and so we as his people care about them too. So if you would, let's bow together and pray now. Lord, this is a prayer of gratitude. In every generation, there are but few people who rise up as symbols of hope and courage, and we thank you for them and for the way they remind us of your care and grace for all the little ones of the earth. We praise you this week as we remember Dr. King for the qualities that shaped his life and the movement he led in our country. May we likewise model a sense of justice. May we regard all souls as having importance in your eyes, and may we never turn to violence but always trust in love and grace to spread your truth in the world. Lord, this is a prayer of repentance. Please help us to see the effects of generational sin in our interactions today. And for the ways we've contributed through what we've said and what we've done or what we've left undone. Forgive our willful blindness to the plight of others in our midst. Forgive the times we are silent when we should speak. Forgive the times we are complicit in sin because we refuse to question or resist injustice. Forgive the times we act in anger or violence or contempt toward your precious children, however different they may be. Lord, this is a prayer of self-examination. Search us and know us. 
if you find any false way in us rooted out? Do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? Do we identify with our race or culture or people more than we identify with your church? Do we favor people that we think are better in some way? Lord, renew our minds, for we were once foolish and wicked and in need of your grace, as is every person in the world. Help us to be ambassadors of your truth to all in love. And Lord, this is a prayer of supplication. It's a prayer of asking. We pray for generations to not pass on patterns of hatred, but instead to work hard to break cycles of sin. To do so by acknowledging and condemning the sins of the past and leading this and the next generations into your righteousness. May we all follow your son in the way of peace and reconciliation. And Father, now as we open your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And we pray these in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I used to be a big uh, movie guy. I'm not anymore because I'm uh, at the point in my financial journey where I'm, I'm only willing to pay for Disney+. Plus. So uh, the movies are hard to come by. Uh, but my kids are getting old enough now that I'm, like, I can see from where I stand the movie marathon that I want to have with them like the movies I grew up with or that I like. It's, they're not quite old enough to do that with me yet, uh, but we're really close. And uh, one of the movies I can't wait to show them uh, is E.T. You guys remember this movie? It's, I, I know it's a little dated. This came out in 1982, so maybe you haven't seen it, uh, depending on your age. But it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's been out for a while, so I'm going to give you some spoilers. It's about an alien. Uh, that's, his, <laughs> that's his hand right there. Uh, he's a friendly alien who visits like a suburban home in California, and that's kind of where the plot starts. And there are lots of iconic moments in this movie. There's iconic lines like E.T. phone home, that when you say them, right, you capture a whole generation of moviegoers. One of the most famous scenes uh, is what I want to point to together here is Elliot, who's the main character. He realizes there's this alien in, his, in this garage or shed or something, and he needs to lure him out to get him into the house. Now, do you remember what he does to get the alien to leave the garage? you remember what he does? Reese's Pieces. That's right. He puts down Reese's Pieces. Becomes kind of a motif in the movie. E.T. really loves the, the Reese's Pieces throughout. What perhaps you didn't know is that Steven Spielberg, who, who wrote and directed this movie actually went to the Mars Candy Company first and asked if M&Ms would be interested in being in this scene. And some big shot at Mars thought that they didn't want M&Ms associated with an alien. It was their most important brand at the time, to be fair. But they read the script and they didn't like it and they thought the movie would bomb and so they turned them down. Reese's, who was then owned by the Hershey Candy Company, jumped at the chance. The, the rumor is that, that Spielberg didn't even get through his, his pitch before they said, yes, we absolutely want to do this with you. E.T., of course, as you know, went on to become the highest grossing film at the time, even beating out Star Wars that had come out just a few years before. And when you adjust for inflation, it is still a top 10 global grossing movie. And one article I read estimated that sales for uh, Hershey... Uh, jumped 60 to 80 percent the following year. And someone at Mars said, oops, 
It was a multi-million dollar mistake. Now, can you imagine being on the team or being the executive who, who looked Steven Spielberg in the eye and said, nah, I'm good. I don't want to do that. Oh my gosh. And then waking up after opening day weekend and reading headlines like best movie ever, question mark, and wondering, man, it's probably time to look at my resume again and update that. <laughs> if those people think like I do, one of the fleeting thoughts I would have had on my morning commute to likely get fired that day, it would have been something like, I wish someone had told me. Like, I wish someone from the future had come back and grabbed me by the lapels and slapped my face and said, do not say no to this. You only get one shot at this. Do it. Say yes. We've been in the Gospel of John for a couple of Sundays now in the new year. And John, if you're not familiar, he wrote his Gospel to tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a biography of the most influential and important person who has ever lived. And John wrote his gospel not because he found Jesus interesting, but because he believed that trusting in this Jesus, that Jesus offer to follow him, to trust him in all that we do, was the most important invitation of all time. And that to miss out on this would be the most tragic, heartbreaking, but avoidable mistakes that any person could ever make. And the passage that we just read is the warning. It's the thing we wish we had before we make the mistake, but we have it now. This is, in John's gospel, the last public proclamation Jesus will make. From chapter 13 on, Jesus is only speaking to his disciples, or he is on his way to death on a Roman cross. This is it. This is the last chance. And fair warning, it doesn't go very well. Almost everyone turns Jesus down here, but John does not want us to do the same thing. He's begging us, don't say no to Jesus. Do not say no to him. Even though you'll be tempted to, like the crowds in our passage and the religious leaders here, we will be tempted to say no, but we must not. We should not. And John is trying to show us ahead of time the reasons we might say no, but can't, shouldn't say no. So if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in uh, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 12, starting in verse 36. And as I said before, this is Jesus' last public address, and it serves as a warning. And John pulls no punches here. So listen to how this starts. This is the second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. After everything we've been through with Jesus from chapter 1 to now, imagine, we've actually been in John off and on for the last year or so. And so if you've been with us that whole time, think back all the way to John chapter 1. We've been with Jesus in his ministry this whole time and this moment is John's summary of how popular Jesus' ministry has been. I mean, think about that. After all the teaching and the signs that Jesus has performed, which we're going to come back to in a second, 
the vast majority of Jesus' contemporaries, they reject him. They do not believe in him. And this passage warns us as to why. Now, I'm going to jump around here in the passage a little bit thematically, but the first reason we see that we might be tempted to say no to this Jesus, like these people did, is actually down in verse 44. So let me read that quickly. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now this is a reminder to us that throughout the Gospel of John, when Jesus really starts talking to other people about himself, people get very, very upset. Now remember with me, the Jewish audience here, the Jewish listeners to Jesus, for them, the most heinous, offensive, and evil thing you could possibly do is to ever dare to make yourself equal with God. To do that was to be a cursed person and to be subject to death. So here comes Jesus talking about himself saying, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me, meaning God. And you, you can imagine the listeners there are going, okay, well, you know, a prophet might say something like that. Like, I, I speak for God. If you trust me, you trust him. Okay. And then he says, I'm the light of the world. And you go, well, okay. You know, Jesus, you are a unique teacher and you've come to shed light on the truth. We get the metaphor. We can get on board with that. And then he says, when you see me, you see God. That's verse 45. And this is where the people say, no, Jesus. Too much. No way. And it's hard to blame them for this. Think about this with me. Even the most uh, central, important religious figures in the world, Muhammad, Moses, Siddhartha, Confucius, they all to various degrees might claim to speak to the divine or the ultimate, to be truth-tellers about the human experience, to have exclusive knowledge or access to reality or whatever it is that they're trying to describe. But none of them, not one of them, said, if you look at me, you will see God, except for Jesus. Jesus' claim to divinity is one of the most divisive things about him. And John's warning us here, don't say no to Jesus, even though his claims are offensive. Offensive, that's the word. They offend. They put us off. They don't make sense at first blush. They challenge us to our very core. They hit us like ice water to the face. And this is very important. If Jesus claims about himself that he is God in the flesh, do not shock you, have never shocked you, even if you believe in him, you probably haven't considered this deeply enough. I was recently watching a brilliant Christian man. He's an apologist, which means he, he defends the Christian faith publicly. Uh, he's actually with the Lord now. He died, he died very young. Uh, but he was named Nabil Qureshi. And he was a Muslim for most of his life until he became a Christian. And uh, he spent his short life uh, proclaiming Jesus uh, with other Muslims and defending the Christian faith to, to Muslims. And he was at an event where there were lots of Muslims present, and he had a Q&A where they could ask him whatever they wanted. And uh, one of the uh, people present, a Muslim, 
asked Qureshi, one of the first questions he got in his Q&A was, how can we take Jesus seriously when he claims to be Allah? He claims to be God. That's blasphemy. It's evil. Okay, this should give us a window into how Jesus claims about himself would have sounded to his original listener and how it should strike us at one time or another. It's offensive to us that Jesus would claim that identity, this divine identity, and authority over everyone. He will later say in verse 48 that his word will be our judge. He says, my word is the last word over your life, whether you acknowledge me or not. That's offensive. And Jesus meant for it to be offensive because the offense pushes us beyond the shallow approach with which some of us might come to Jesus in the first place. Most of us, when we approach Jesus or the Bible or the church or Christianity, we often ask ourselves whether we like Jesus or not. That's our first question. Do I resonate with him? Do I like him? Do I connect with him? This is where you hear sentiments like, yes, I like this about Jesus, but I don't agree with this thing that he said, or Jesus is a great moral example to us for, to, to love one another, or he's a great teacher. We have much to learn from him. Jesus is way too offensive to say things like that about him. He won't let you get away with that. What, what we like or do not like about Jesus is nowhere near the most important question to him. In fact, there are things Jesus will say that make us decidedly not like him at one point or another, at least at first. The question is not, do we like Jesus? But is Jesus right? Is he correct about the world, about God, about himself? In other words, we have to take this offense seriously because Jesus meant it. But we must also not say no to him. Even though his claims are offensive, we must not say no. Because he shows us signs to prove his claim. In fact, the whole first half of John's gospel, so roughly chapter 2 to chapter 11 in John's gospel, by people who study the book, they often call it the book of signs. It's organized around seven signs Jesus gives to prove he is who he says he is and why we shouldn't say no to him. It's all organized around these signs. They are Jesus' proof and therefore John's proof that Jesus is who he claims to be. The problem is that even the signs become another reason why we might be tempted to say no to him. That's actually the profound irony of John's entire gospel. He names it right off the bat, verse 37. He reminds us, though, this is John's comment on this moment. He says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John does not want us to make the same mistake, even though Jesus' signs are confounding to us. And I thought long and hard about this word confounding because we don't use it much in our everyday language, at least I don't. And it's a goal as we think about communicating up front that we're using words that are relatable, they're easy to understand, but I could not think of a better word. <laughs> Confounding means to surprise someone by failing to meet their expectation. It's more than just confusing. 
it, because it's actually frustrating. To be confounded is almost to be disappointed. And Jesus' signs, his proofs are confounding to most of the people around him. And if you don't believe me, let me run through them very quickly with you. The first sign Jesus performed in John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. Pretty cool. But remember, he doesn't just turn any water into wine. He goes to these huge cisterns, which John tells us are full of water for Jewish ritual cleansing. And he turns that water into alcohol for a party. Now, I don't know if you know a lot of really religious people, but things like that can make them mad. I don't know if you know that. Then he goes to the temple at Passover. This is like Christmas. It's, it's packed at the temple at Passover. Jesus enters the temple. He makes a whip and he drives out the money changers. And he turns over tables and he pours out bags of money to prove that he's God. That's confounding. He then heals an official son, which we don't know if it's a Roman official or a Herodian official, but either way, this is an oppressor's son that Jesus heals. He then heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, gets into a huge fight with the religious leaders. He feeds 5,000 people. And then he says, if you thought that was good, try eating my flesh. Then he heals a man born blind again on the Sabbath. And the point he drives home with everyone watching, with this blind man, is, man, if you thought this guy was blind, you should look at yourself. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead, in part to show that he too needed to die in order to be the Jewish Messiah, which absolutely no one wanted to hear. And there you have it, amazing signs that had the effect of ultimately getting Jesus killed. They were so confounding. They were so disappointing. They were so frustrating. This is why John then quotes the prophet Isaiah back in our passage here and notes that God himself predicted that Jesus would be rejected for this very reason. Now, there's some debate about this passage. Is Isaiah saying that God caused his people to reject Jesus? Did he simply give them over to their disbelief? after they rejected Jesus over and over and over again, there's a mystery here in the interplay between God's sovereignty, his power, and his knowledge and human responsibility that I cannot resolve now and probably won't ever resolve. But overall, I think John wants to say here that through the prophet Isaiah, that the very people who should know God the best are often the most confounded by him. And that that has always, always, always been the case. There's nothing, and, and Jesus is no exception. His own people rejected him because he confounded them. And we're still tempted to be confounded by him. Jesus simply refuses to get put into any box that we create for him. Walk long enough with him and you'll realize that too. He will not split the world into good guys and bad guys like we want him to. He does not vote Democrat or Republican. He does not condone our hedonism and our pleasure or our religiosity. He defies our logic and our expectation. He gives grace when we want judgment. He says endure when we want, we want relief. He says trust when we do not understand. He says follow when we want to run away. 
And he says, die every day to yourself when all we want to do is live freely for ourselves. Jesus is offensive in his claims. And he is confounding at every step. He refuses to let us get our hands on him. And on top of all of that, his call is absolute. Is absolute. We talked a lot about this last week in Jesus' teaching on dying to ourselves. So if you missed that sermon, it's really, really important. Go back and watch it. It's on our website. But the principle of carrying our cross, of dying to self, is illustrated here. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, John says, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And John is illustrating here that belief in Jesus is more than intellectual agreement with him. That what Jesus is after is more than a simply believing Jesus is who he says he is. But, and you see it here, these leaders believed in Jesus, but they were unwilling to show their faith in public. They were unwilling to carry, to to bear a, a cost to their faith. This is not the belief Jesus is ultimately after. He's not content with that. His call is higher than that. It requires, in fact, a radical obedience and allegiance to Jesus that might cost us everything. It does cost us everything. To follow him is to love him above all worldly comfort and human identity and to risk losing it all. Now, for these people in John chapter 12, that cost was very tangible to them. John points it out. They're afraid they're going to get thrown out of synagogue for agreeing with Jesus, which if you're not familiar, synagogue was the the place of of weekly and even daily worship of God outside the temple in Jewish life. To be thrown out of synagogue at this time was like a death sentence culturally. It was a symbol of God's rejection of you. It would likely lead to the loss of your family because the shame they would bear just by being associated with you. You could lose your friends, your business, your reputation, your honor, your standing. Our culture is so individualistic that we hardly have an equivalent for what this would be. But make no mistake, Jesus' call is that absolute. John points this out to say they should have been willing to lose everything for him. But they weren't. At least not yet. So if you stuck with me this far, perhaps you're wondering, Andrew, Why wouldn't we say no to Jesus? (laughs) If the sales pitch for Jesus is that he's offensive, that he's confusing to the point of frustration, and that in spite of all of that, he demands your ultimate and final allegiance, why does anyone say yes to him? I'll put it further. Why have millions and millions and millions of people said yes to him? Why did even some of the religious leaders here who Jesus confronted to their faces? Why did some of them eventually say yes to him? Which we'll see some of them in John chapter 20. Why across every language and culture and politics and gender for thousands and thousands of years have people given their allegiance to him even to the point of death? And it's all right here in these verses if we have eyes to see. First off, Jesus doesn't just preach a sermon as his last public speech. He cries out 
Do you see that word? It's in verse 44. He cries out. He cries out in this final appeal to a group of people who hated him so much, some of whom would have a hand in actually killing him in the end. He cries out to them. Now, this word, cry out, can simply mean to yell loud. But it can also mean, like it does in English, to cry out in pain or in anguish or in grief. It's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament, this Greek word, to describe crying out in labor pain, to cry out in the fear of death, to cry out in a desperate prayer. So it's hard to know for sure, but my sense is, given the gravity of this moment and that Jesus will no longer be physically available to these people, that Jesus is in agony here. He's in pain. Because even these people who cannot get past the offense, the disappointment, the demands of Jesus, who've rejected him over and over and over again. Yes, even these people are people whom Jesus loves. He loves them. He does not want them to say no. And where we would probably, if we were his disciples, be furious with these people, And be glad to be rid of them after three years of constant arguing and badgering and harassing Jesus. At every turn, Jesus is heartbroken that they won't believe in him. And Jesus, he drives his point home here in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. When Jesus describes why he came in the first place, he tells us he did not come to judge, to condemn, to shame, to shun, to lecture, to argue. He came to save. And he knows that to say no to him is more than just obstinance. It's permanent. It's eternal. There is no going back. It's everything. Notice with me, Jesus, if he is who he says he is, has every right to be offended by our lack of trust in him, to be confused and disappointed in us for never living up to his standards. And he has every right to demand of us even our lives because he's the one who gave them to us in the first place. But he does not come to judge. He did not come to rub it in your face. He did not arrive and take on flesh and live his life and die on a Roman cross to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And he came to show anyone who would be tempted to say no to him, which we all have done, that he does not say no to you. He does not say no to you. When you begin to understand that, that the only one who had the right to say no doesn't, And that on the cross, Jesus proves that whatever the cost may be for following him, as high as it is, it is nothing compared to the cost of getting you back. Then you'll begin to understand how this offensive, confounding, and demanding Jewish carpenter turned the world upside down. And still does. In every tongue, tribe, and nation. And in the hearts and minds in this very room. Don't say no to him. 
Don't say no to him. Even if you're here and you, and you don't know what you think yet, you, you don't know what to make of all of this, don't close yourself to it. Don't walk away from it. Don't say to the one who never, don't say no to the one who never says no to you. Turn to him. Believe in him. Receive life in his name. May it be true of all of us. Let's pray to him now. Father, I pray for each one here. I pray for those who are here who, who know you. Who know your son, Jesus. But perhaps are tempted to revile him, to, be, to walk away from him even, to turn their back on him. And I pray, Holy Spirit, protect us from that. May we never say no to him. And I pray for those in the room who do not know your son, Jesus. That their eyes would be open to who he is. Not just in his divinity and his authority and his power and his glory, but in his grace, in his forgiveness, in his love for them. May they see it. May we all see it the one who never says no to us. We pray in his name, amen.